Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 29, 2016. The share ID for Friday, May 27th, is 8775. That's 8775. This morning, A Vision for You presents Spiritus Contra Spiritum. The seed that would grow into Alcoholics Anonymous was first planted by the renowned Swiss psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Jung. Jung is noted in the annals of AA history as naming the solution of a vital spiritual experience for his alcoholic client, Roland Hazard. Hazard who sought and found this spiritual experience in the tenets of the Oxford groups, then helped Ebby Thatcher find this spiritual experience, and eventually Ebby Thatcher carried that same solution to Bill Wilson. In a 1961 letter to Bill Wilson, Dr. Carl Jung noted, you see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus, and you use the same word, for the highest religious experience as well as the most depraving poison. The helpful formula, therefore, is spiritus contra spiritum. In other words, the highest form of spiritual experience counters the most depraving poison, high spirit against low spirit. The big book was written as a set of directions for doing the 12 steps. The promise of the 12-step process is one of a spiritual awakening, a psychic change, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The 12 steps are a specific method for producing this personal, vital transformation Jung referred to. And these results give us freedom from this low spirit. For us, the bondage of food. The steps remove the obstacles that block the connection to the higher spirit, our higher power deep down within us. As soon as the block is removed, we have conscious contact with that higher power. And as soon as we have conscious contact with that higher power, we are restored to sanity. We are transformed. A change has occurred in the way we think feel, and behave, and a new set of conceptions, ideas, and attitudes begin to dominate us. Joining us this morning is Carol G., a recovered compulsive overeater from England. Carol has had this spiritual awakening as a result of these 12 steps, and she's here to share her story with us today. Welcome to the line, Carol G., Good morning, it's Carol G, Compulsive Overeater Recovered One Day at a Time. Um, and am I being able to be heard? Yes, thank God, Carol. <laughs> oh, good, thank you. Thank you so much, Leah, and good morning, everybody. Um, I forgot how to unmute. It's the craziest thing, isn't it? There you go, blank spot. So here we are, I'm Carol G, I'm recovered, and thank you for the introduction. Um, 
I think I'll start by just bringing to mind all my ancestors, the people that have gone before us. We heard a few of them in, in that little share there and I've been calling in some of my spiritual brothers and sisters who've gone before me in our lineage because they're the ones I've been getting all my experience from. Um, I mean, I absolutely categorically owe my life to Overeaters Anonymous and to this little blue book. Um, where do I begin? So I, I think for me, a tornado, it was a tornado that ripped through my life. Um, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share with you today about that tornado story because my story for me was so traumatizing, it had to be removed. My higher power has taken it from me for safekeeping. And the only time I can recall it is when I'm sharing it with somebody else. So first of all, I'll just ask God to um, to free me of the bondage to self and and to also remove my stage characters so that I can better do your will. Um, I think the big book for me is a guide for living. It's that missing link that I've always been searching for. Um, and in many ways, as a recovered compulsive overeater, my life's only just begun. Um, it's brought me into the present moment for the very first time in my life. I am right here, right now. Good morning. And it's amazing because I've never been right here and right now, ever. Um, so I'm currently facing quite a lot of huge personal reconstruction. I've got a lot of health problems and they all need straightening out. And I had a doctor on my journey who, who gave me a really amazing sentence. She, she brought some hope when she said, illness is nature's reset button. And, you know, when I look at recovery like that, the 12-step process is nature's reset button for compulsive overeaters. Because I've been given a second chance to be completely changed from the inside out and realigned with a power greater than myself. I've been having a spiritual disconnect and I know that if anybody has diabetes and they're born with that, they can't produce their own insulin and they have to use a man-made insulin to replace it. Well, I've tried many various man-made treatments to fix my brokenness, but I couldn't on my own power press that reset button. I couldn't have a spiritual connection and I turn to the book for the answers, all the answers, because it seems to be set out in a really precise way. It's like a roadmap, isn't it? It seems to know where it's going. It knows what order it's in, and it knows how to get there. And when I read the steps on the wall, I used to read the short form, which was my life's uh, unmanageable and I'm powerless over food. And I used to think, check, I'm sorted. But actually, the big book begins on XXV in, in um, step one, and it spans about four chapters. And going through that journey, through that process in those pages has sparked a remarkable change in me. So, so I look at the big book today and I think, well, it's physical. It begins with the outside, the people, the fellowship, what's going on in my body and my body craving. And in my experience, all my poison had to go down first. And I don't know why I felt as if I was resisting, but I was terrified to live without my food. I would go into shock without my food. Um... My body cravings were so intense um, and I had to act out and meet its demands. So the big book starts with the physical realm and it started with my connection to my environment, the food I was buying, the food I was preparing and how I was eating it. And in a way, when I first came, I actually had a pet hate for the word abstinence because I just couldn't do it. And I tried food plans, dignity of choice, white knuckling, and my mind and body together would not allow me to follow them. 
And I learned recently that I actually also fit into a term called exercise bulimic because I would purge the extra calories by running or swimming or training very hard, which was just another way to take that edge off. All I will say today about my particular food plan is that it was prescribed by my body for my body in the way my body needs to eat. If I could have heard the conversation, I think, between my body and my mind, it would have gone something like, mind, if you don't stop force feeding me all this food, I'm going to take my, all of this into my own hands and I'm going to shut you down. And that's exactly what happened to me. So now the big book has told me about the body, it moves into the territory of the mind and I learn about control and that control is my problem, page 30. And when I read that page, I don't read it in the same way I used to. I, I personalise it and I say, let's have a look. Carol doesn't like to think she's bodily and mentally different from her fellows. Therefore, Carol's eating career has been characterised by countless vain attempts to control what I like and what I eat and to look how I look like. And my great obsession with controlling and enjoying my food and weight and shape has persisted all my life and it's taken me to the gates of insanity and near death. And the big book shows me how this twisted thinking deceives me and it tells me that sometimes I can raise a defence but if I'm a real compulsive overeater, it won't last. My mind will threaten to kill me. It used to actually do things like give me intrusive thoughts, nightmares, emotional traumas just to make me eat and... Um, I just knew, somehow I just knew that only a spiritual experience would conquer whatever it was I was going through. And I love the big book because the authors seem to know me more than I know myself. And I've really come to trust that. Because somehow they found a way to unite body, mind and spirit. They've, be, they've somehow enabled me to reconnect myself in all these three areas and become whole again. And I've been yearning for that all my life. And... Sometimes I see my illness from my mind's point of view, sometimes from my body's, and for some reason I chose the spiritual angle, and I thought, oh gee whiz, I've chosen a really wishy-washy bit, why is that? Well, because the spirit, I guess, is really, isn't easy to contain or describe. I mean, where is it? What is it? My own spirit, I believe, for me, is energy, and that's how I connect with my higher power, and all I know of my own spirit is that I have one. And it was not happy. And it wasn't happy when I was abstinent. And it wasn't happy when I was in the food. I was kind of restless, irritable, discontented from the minute I, from the minute I was born. Um, whatever my spirit is, I've come to believe that my spirit knows far much more than my mind will ever know. It doesn't seem to need all the answers right this second. And it's not like my mind. It's not grasping and desperate. It's really calm. <laughs> and it also has ears. Um it seems to know things that I don't know and it listens for them and it guides me with internal cues. For example, if I hear something on the shares on the calls that I relate to, my spirit goes, yes, that's it. That's what we need to know. Act on that. And that took me quite a long time to discern, really, um, because what I used to call God consciousness was actually me talking to my disease mind. Um, I've worshipped knowledge um, and my mind and I'm so done with that. But knowledge was a real power for me and I binged on information. I think actually when I look back, I was interviewing everybody in OA to find out how do we live? How do we live? What's the secret? What's the secret? And I overloaded my brain. I blew a fuse and just in the same way I can overload my guts with food, I'll bite off more than I can chew just with studying. And then what happens to me is I can't digest it. 
and I can't process it and I can't assimilate it and my brain actually hurts um, and I can't stop doing that on my own power either. Um, I definitely need rewiring. Um, that reminds me of the old Frankenstein movies, you know, where the lightning strike striking on the laboratory and it's all filled with electricity and they're trying to bring that monster's brain back from the dead. There's lots of screaming and yelling and um, I've been trying to do that all my life. Um, I've been trying to play God. In fact, I've been trying to play Dr. Frankenstein. And I actually looked in the big book and took the um, the chapter t to the title, um, Physician Heal Thyself, too literally. The humble truth is that I'm the monster. And with no human power, I can't be reanimated. Um, and I watch how my mind tries to hijack me and say, you, you, all you have to do is reanimate yourself by doing this. Read this book. Go on this course. But actually, it's because it's frightened of the realm of the spirit. It seems too confusing and wishy-washy for my mind. But that's because I live in the third dimension where there are feelings and thoughts and physical material things. You see, my brain thinks that if it can just get some order to all that, everything's going to be okay. And I know now that the great spirit has to press this reset button. I can't do it for myself. It's like ER when they jumpstart someone's heart. Something else has to flick that switch for me. You see, I was trying to chase that switch that I was trying to flick. And I, I was trying to find God on my own, but I missed one valuable component. What I didn't realize was I needed rewiring first. The connections were not there yet. I could see what I needed, I could see perhaps where I could get it from, but the instructions to make it work were just absent in my life. And then the directions in the big book turned up and they did the job for me. I think when I think of spirit, it's the thing that animates all life really, um, light, gentle, um, that indomitable spirit that you see in people when everyone's unified together to recover it creates an intense spiritual connection, and I, I love that about the fellowship. I decided not to share, I think, from the Step 11 pers uh, perspective, because my God connection is very personal and a bit difficult to describe. So I think I'll focus more on um, why I think I needed a spiritual experience. Um, and then I'll start sharing a little bit, I think, about what I've learned just recently in Step 4. Um, let me see, so... As Leia read, in Language to the Heart, page 281, he talks about the spiritual malady. He says, we've found that these horrible conditions of mind and body bring on the third phase of our malady. This is a sickness of our spirit, a sickness for which there must be a spiritual remedy. The remedy named in step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. He says it's a necessary awakening and it's our remedy for our threefold sickness of mind, body and soul. He said, I do believe that the physical and mental bring about the spiritual malady. And I've, I've lived with that all my life. And it's always really funny to me because I thought I had the restless, irritable discontent before I did the eating. But I'll never know the answer to that. And it's not really important to me anymore. I think that the fact that Bill considers it is enough for me. So in another conversation with Carl Jung, he asks, oh no, actually, he says to Bill, in Latin, the word alcohol is spiritus, and you use the same word spirit for the highest religious experience as well as the depraving poison. So therefore, the helpful formula, in my opinion, says Jung, is spiritus contra spiritum. And my personal translation is 
Only the spirit can heal my spirit by having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. In other words, I have to have both. I can't just have one or the other. And I fit into Carl Jung's equation absolutely. I was showing a need for a spiritual experience all my life because my entire life looked like page 52. I called it separation anxiety. And what I mean by that, I think, was that if I put food down, I would die. And the mind and body and spiritual separation left me feeling as if I was also disconnected from the outside world. And on my own power, I could not control my personal relationships. I think even as early as eight years old, I called it fridge door disease. I'd kind of make it home alive again, um, go straight to the fridge for some ease and comfort. But my brother did the same thing. And he isn't like me, so what's going on? Um, I was showing symptoms of a spiritual separation. He was just hungry. I just needed to take the edge off. So by age 12, on my own power, I wasn't able to control my emotional nature, for example. I was always sad. I was mooning around. I felt a bit lost. Food didn't seem too disturbing until I started to go through puberty. Um, and it was very heartbreaking for me because I was sure that the answer was going to be to starve myself. I believed that there was something inside of me that needed starving out, but I couldn't do it because about 10 seconds later I was back in the food. I was showing so many symptoms of spiritual disconnection. I was brought up to believe that if you want something doing, you've got to do it yourself. So I tried to control this, that the more I controlled it, it the more it controlled me. I was always a sitting duck to pray in misery. I would be enjoying time out with my friends and then suddenly, dark clouds. I would be doom and gloom. And actually, my brother said to me a couple of years ago, I remember when you were about 15, you kind of disappeared into a really gloomy, depressed state. And that was the same time my sugar dependence increased and I started to drink alcohol. My disease really tried to put my lights out with alcohol. Even though I'm not an alcoholic and I don't have the allergy for alcohol, what it does for me is it triggers the desire to crave food. Um, I tried to keep up with my friends drinking, but I was the one who would end up waking up choking on their own vomit, choking on smoke in the middle of the night, um, waking up with the bed on fire. I mean, I would actually cook in the middle of the night without realizing it and pass out because I passed out um, and nearly kill myself. Um, so that didn't go very well. Um, as things got worse, I remember swallowing food whole. I remember my body saying, mm -mm, we're not swallowing any of this food whole. And for every time I kind of had a binge from then on, it was almost as if something inside me just died. I just saw signs and symptoms of this deeper problem. This spiritual unrest was just getting stronger and stronger. And I know Bill said, you know, in this reading that step one simply means that we have to hit bottom and we have to hit it hard. And, and I hit hard bottoms and... Um, you know, some of them stand out more than others. I actually wrote a timeline, I called it. Um, looking back, my spiritual disconnect coincided with the disease's growth spurts. The most significant times were at puberty, when I was crash dieting, binge drinking, over-exercising, studying and working too hard, and when I was pregnant. My disease seemed to use these vulnerable times in my life to have growth spurts. Any huge shift in body weight up or down seemed to aggravate my physical body, which created more spiritual unrest. You know, dieting and messing around with my body weight was the worst thing that I could have done. Um, I was messing around with my physical body chemistry and all my animal instincts. 
I mean, I was already wired for physical craving, so I was just playing with dynamite, but I didn't know. I looked back sometimes and thought, wow, I'm such a bad person, I'm so weak-willed. Um, but I'm I'm really hardwired to be um, a restless, irritable, discontented person. Um, and it wasn't, it didn't matter how much food I threw down my throat, who I married, where I lived, where I travelled to, how much college or degrees I got from university, the more symptoms of spiritual separation I had, they didn't change anything. I, it's almost as if I needed a spiritual electrician. Um, everybody said to me, Carol, you've got so much potential. And I know I have potential, um, but I couldn't get three good days together in a row. Um, so I studied harder and I worked harder and I just ended up eating harder to keep up the pace. Um, I'm just thinking now that force feeding myself or starving myself was really traumatizing for me. Um, I did want the food. It was a painkiller. I, I, I felt I needed it. But sometimes I would just stand there and go, if anybody did to me what I just did to me now with the food, I'd call the police. And it was a very, very lonely life because how do you tell somebody that the abuser that's killing you is inside of you? So where was all my potential going? Um, it was going on fighting the disease, keeping a straight face, trying to man up, trying to beat it alone um, and trying to pretend I was a normal person. Um, I mean, I remember recently doing a step nine with my mum and I apologise for not being there. I'm sure you know what that means. I was trapped in another dimension, always fighting to just be normal. It was exhausting and connect with other people. Um, when I look back, it was not just the inner unmanageability that was an issue. Powerlessness was a big elephant in the room. Um, I was a power dresser, a power seeker, and I wouldn't have said that about myself. I just thought I was being passionate and enthusiastic. But it was driven by this desire for the power that my father had. He modelled power, and of course, he had physical strength, and, he, and of course, he had more food on his plate. And I used to dream of being a superpower, or getting a superpower um, because I knew there was something wrong with me and I knew that the cure would probably be something to do with power or spirit but I wasn't ex exactly sure what that was going to be and I became really interested in movies about exorcism because I was convinced that something had to be cast out of me and just like in step five that's exactly what I was trying to pursue so I set on this journey a quest to find some kind of spiritual healer um, because my poor body was dying. I just wasn't meant to take all this physical punishment. And every day I would apologize to my body and I'd say, I'm so sorry, I'll find you some help. Just hang in there. And it wasn't until I almost killed my son um, eating whilst I was pregnant that I finally said, I admit I'm out of ideas. But my body was so damaged and beyond repair. Just like Dr. Silkworth, I was patched up by the hospital and sent back on my way again. And it was okay for a while, but when the physical pain subsided or the emotional pain wore off, I was at it again. I was so much a jaywalker. And my spirit brought me to you, to OA, and I literally crawled in on my knees Um and my spiritual light that I used to sing about in school, was it was almost out. And my, my spine was fusing. I couldn't stop screaming. I couldn't calm down. If anybody rattled a, a food container, I almost had a heart attack. I was convinced that food was just going to dive into my mouth. 
And so when everyone in OA said to me, welcome home, I was like, oh, thank goodness, I found you. <laughs> um, I really did come for a solution for my restless, uh, irritable discontentedness. But um, because because on the outside, I had everything. Um, I didn't have the weight I really would like, of course. I was overweight. I wasn't very well. But I just had a new baby. I'd been promoted. I had a brand new car. I knew lots of interesting people. I mean, I was dead on the inside. Um, I was told it's a spiritual program. Keep coming back. Um, I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> but I stuck around. And my first sponsor, who was a really, really spiritual woman, she was so tough, love, but she was awesome. She... Um, she calmed me down after a major rant. I'd gone into a clothing store in my first few weeks uh, of the program and I'd seen myself in the mirror. Um, I'd gone into a complete breakdown and she said, Carol, you have a dog and dog is God, spelt backwards. Now go home and learn how to live and eat by watching the dog. <laughs> I was so desperate, I tried anything. Um, and I loved that dog and he was like a second son to me, that animal. And... With my focus on that dog, I noticed that his spirit was boundless. He had this joie de vivre, he had this joy for life, and he was completely in the moment. He would just be asleep and then wide awake and barking in about 10 seconds, and he was flexible and happy and oh, exuberant, and he gave off this really intense feeling, what I used to call happy hormones, Um and I know that science has now proven that stroking dogs can lower your blood pressure. Well, he certainly helped me. <laughs> because what I'd done to my poor body was starve it, abuse it with exercise, laxatives, food, force-fed it thousands of calories in one go. Um, and I was a grazer. I ate constantly. I was either chewing food, pens, fingernails. My stomach never actually had a break. Um, <clears throat> and then there was all the self-hate and the self-talk. I think actually living 24 hours a day with this internal abuse coming from my mind, trying to change my personality, trying to change my character, trying to change my hair, my shape, how I speak, how I react, <gasps> everything was just registering as a threat and it was a threat to my basic survival and that's how I felt. I felt I was trying to survive and I was on red alert all the time and I had this terrible intense spiritual unrest. I really feared for my sanity and... I remember there came a time when I just couldn't talk about it anymore because I just felt I was just getting relief but not getting really recovered. And um, I noticed that when the meeting ended or the phone calls ended, I would just feel as lost as I did when it started. And this horrible thing would just descend upon me. And I'd have to white knuckle again until the, the following week because, <clears throat> excuse me, we only had one meeting. So for one hour a week, once a week, I was abstinent, and it was like a miracle. And then it would start again the moment I left the room. Um, so this simple book I've got here in my hands is like my signpost to recovery. It's full of precise directions and instructions. And I didn't follow them correctly because I felt as if I was tricked by my disease. It knew. It was fighting for its life. As soon as I came into OA, it upped its game. And because it speaks in my voice and uses my thoughts to communicate with me, it knew my move before I even made it. It kept me distracted, it kept me focused on the food, and I could not see the solution. So every night for years in a way I came home exhausted. 
I think the saddest thing in a way for me was that we couldn't, we didn't know that we could get free. And then I got a, a tape from Intergroup by a Canadian speaker and he talked about being recovered. And I was thought, hmm, recovered. So I reset my compass and I headed off in his direction. Um, I didn't stay awake very long during those years though and I did end up in a two-year binge. I actually only decided to have one bite and it took two years to burn itself out. I, I, I went into shock, to be honest. I went into shock. I could not believe that my left hand was fighting off my right hand. And it went on and on and on. And I thought, there's, get, there's just never going to be an end to this. And I found a new sponsor. But I was still willful. I was still in bondage to self. And instead of turning to God, I turned to the sponsor. And together we designed my new life. Because by now I had things like sane and sound sex ideals. I had ideas for the future. I had defects of character. I could just flip around and change and move. I had new career moves I could do and financial plans. Life beyond my wildest dreams was mapped out. And part of that life beyond my wildest dreams was to show up for an operation that the doctor had been once chasing me to do for a long time. But I was so afraid to have it done because I thought I was going to die under the anaesthetic. I was too overweight and I was frightened, but I couldn't lose the weight. So I pleaded with God. I said, please find a way to stop this terrible disease. I'm, it's killing me. What on earth am I going to do? I can't stop this runaway train. <laughs> and I always say to myself, now, be careful what you wish for. Because part of me did die on the operating table. The Carol that you're now talking to and listening to is not the same person. I am what's left of that person. When I say I pray to die to self many years ago and be reborn, I didn't realize it was going to be so painful, just like that poor monster on Frankenstein's operating table. But to be honest, I was chasing living a life of rich and fame and living on a houseboat in Tobago or owning my own TV series or something. But actually, I don't tell God what I need anymore. Because what I couldn't see at the time was I was using the third step prayer like a magic charm. I was trying to get life beyond my wildest dreams. So every time I reached step 11 and said, praying only for knowledge of your will for me, I was basically expecting a payout from the request I put in at step three. Where's my shiny life, God? Where's my stuff? So while I was busy putting all these plans into place, I was still on the sugar. And one thing was certain, it wasn't going to stop. It wasn't burning itself out this time, and it was a really long, hard slog. And just out of left field, I don't know if it was part of the, whatever happened to me, I got ill. And I had to go to hospital, but the hospital treatment backfired. My body rejected the hospital's treatment, it rejected food, and it went into shock. Um, my stomach just completely shut down. It refused. <laughs> it warned me a long time ago, if you don't do something, I'm taking this all into my own hands. And I couldn't take any of the medication that was offered. And this time I became dangerously underweight. I was skeletal in a matter of months. Energy just drained out of me. And my body was in so much pain and I couldn't move. I was just trapped in the bed and there was no one there to help me. And months went by. I felt like I was the only person on the on the planet. Um, the doctor said, we can't help you. And that left me devastated. And the disease took its advantage. It started to tell me, you're worthless. There's nothing left to live for. You might as well just starve to death. Go on. 
You see, God can't refeed me. God can't cook. And there was no one showing up to cook for me. I, but I knew still that spirit was the answer, but I had to get something straight with my body first. I had a friend in nowhere whose mum was an alcoholic and I had her on speed dial. And I remember lying in the bed and all I could do was manage to get one finger to the button on the telephone. I was so weak I couldn't even speak. She said, Carol, I know it's you. You don't have to speak. She said, all I have to say is AA loves you, God loves you, and I love you. And she put the phone down. And you know, that was enough fuel to make a change. It was enough fuel to reignite my little light. And I made a call to a dietitian and said, help me. And you know what? I said help me because death seems to run at you really quickly when you're underweight. When you're overweight, it kind of creeps up on you. It was very scary. So with the help of a dietitian, two long years it took to wean me back onto food, just like an infant. Um, my body had become so allergic and so intolerant, I had to go through every single meal, one snack and one tablespoon at a time. And finally, I hit a normal weight. I wasn't at a normal weight for very long before I went into another shock. While I was underweight, I felt fantastic. The cravings had been lifted. I felt free. The mental twist had gone. <laughs> but it had flipped me into anorexia. And I remember the day it flipped back from control to compulsion. It was the day I added those final 10 grams of oatmeal to breakfast. I just felt my stomach stretch a little tiny fraction more and my entire body and physiology just changed. My nervous system went crazy. Alarm bells went off in my head. And this tsunami of compulsion just descended on me from the inside out. Oh my goodness, I'd triggered my craving. I laid there on the floor for hours. I, was, I didn't move. Um, I thought, it's going to have me again. It's going to take me out again. I couldn't believe it. Because unlike my dog, there's no off switch. My dog would just eat a meal and stop, drink its water and stop, run and stop. But I just couldn't stop. There was no stop. So I let loose this thing and the only way I could control it, it seemed to me at the time, was to chew chewing gum and I chewed and I chewed and I chewed and I I can tell you today I'm in agony with jaw pain from all that chewing. Um, I used to chew food and spit it out. I didn't know that that was a form of bulimia. Um, I was sl slipping and sliding with my food, with my abstinent food because it was taking the edge off and then a woman was May I be Thatcher. She came down from Scotland to our meeting and she said to me, Carol, you have to be abstinent 100% of all compulsive overeating. You're not just in a sugar program. Get it all sorted. And I was like, oh. So I white knuckled again. I made it to step nine again. <laughs> and then I reintroduced something again and relapsed again. And my sponsor said to me, I can't help you. You know far too much about the big book. You've been in the program 13 years. I've only been here three I don't know how to help somebody like you. I was devastated. I'd failed in a way. What was I going to do now? I'm just remembering now that somehow, I don't know how, I was signposted to the internet and I heard a vision for you and I was hooked. And I think not just was it the fact that there was a very strong message that I'd not really heard for a while was the people who were sharing were 20 and 30 and 35 years in OA, and yet in a few months, they recovered. And I was like, oh, there's still hope. So I'd been given my food plan. My body had shown me how to, how to eat. And without any yes buts or maybes, I got to it. 
This is the shortest turnaround story ever. It took 13 weeks. It took 13 weeks to recover. I'm still amazed. After 13 years of living with untreated alcoholism, it took 13 weeks. I stood in the kitchen. I thought, I knew it. I knew this worked. And the wind of that terrible cyclone just finally stopped blowing. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I was just thinking about where it says where the tornado stops and he comes out of the cellar. I stood there and I thought, oh my goodness, what on earth happened to my life? I was divorced. I was broke. My career has gone down the tubes. I was crippled in pain. <laughs> but one thing that was miraculous was I wasn't tempted. Just like Bill says of Ebby, he wasn't tempted. It, it was just lifted from me. Just having a drink of water. Um, so somehow nature's reset button got pressed and I've been shown how to eat all over again. And now I have to deal with my mental twist, my spiritual malady in that reconnection with the spirit. My spirit has found life beyond its wildest dreams. My ego kept saying it's about shiny things. That's what matters. But to my spirit, that's not what matters. What matters to my spirit is to be free of the bondage to self. That my life isn't perfect. That I'll get the best health I'm going to get. And my period of reconstruction, it's not going to happen all at once. I've got a body, a body, how do they say it? Body badly burned and it's not going to take over, it's not going to be an overnight matter. It's going to take some time. I had to get my focus off what God's doing for me in the world and look at what God's doing from me on inside because I've been rewired. This connection of mine to this source of power and wisdom is just amazing. I've only just begun to tap into it. We hear about that, don't we, on the call and... When I first came to OA, I think I came home to you. And I think now I'm coming home to my body, to myself. The three parts of me are getting reunited, that mind and body and spirit becoming one. And my hand on heart, I have no idea what God's will for me is now in the future. But I'm not obsessed with what it's going to be. I've lost that need to know. How is it all going to end? Um, oh, yes, in the big book. At the back of the book, I've got the got the name of it now but the I did think that the big book was a novel I turned to the last page when I first came and um, I thought I wonder if it's worth staying so I read this it says we reject fantasizing and accept reality I live in a dream world AA led me from gently from this fantasizing to embrace reality with open arms for I found it beautiful for at last I was at peace with myself and with others, and with God. And I remember reading that laboriously, languidly, quietly, calmly. I just kept reading that over and over. How am I going to be at peace with myself? And now I'm actually experiencing that, and I'm finding this peace. Um, so the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, does it have all the answers for me? Yes. Spirit truly can overcome the spirit, and this book is my guidebook for life. Uh, to me... It's not the thing I was studying to begin with. It's more like water. I kind of just let it pour into me. I'm the vessel and it pours into me and it just takes my shape. And it's like water. It doesn't seek to overpower me. It kind of looks for the lower ground, which means it always meets me at the level that I'm at. Um, anything that I don't need just trickle away. And everybody 
I even met in OA didn't actually give me something. They gave me something more valuable. They helped me to take something away. They helped me to remove more of that bondage to self. Um, oh, look at the time. Um, that's a nice segue, actually, into what I was going to share about um, something that I've just been looking at recently. Um, I'm trying to get my sense of humour back. I lost it. Um, and I've been trying also, trying, don't try. If you're trying, you will fall, Carol. Um, what I've been experiencing is a deeper connection with my higher power recently, and it's round about the step four part, and I know we're starting to discover that in the daily recordings at the moment, and I need to die to the self a little bit more all the time, and I've become an annual house cleaner at the moment because I've said there's, there's an awful lot for me to do. Um, I know we like to, on Vision for You, expand our teachings, so I was just going to share with you what I've discovered about the will. Um, I decided to do this because I was receiving a lot of calls from people who were actually recovered and they were feeling as if they were jaywalking or obsessing or felt a little bit stuck. A pattern seemed to emerge on the Step 10 calls and most of them were able to see where they were at fault or in bondage to self, but then with certain resentments they couldn't. They couldn't see what was going on and I think what brought me some clarity was basic instincts of self, third column. I will say, before I go any further, for anybody who's not recovered and is attempting the first inventory, their first inventory, just don't stop to smell the roses. Keep going, keep going. You can come back and get this the next time round. Um, keep it simple, Dr. Bob always says. Um, when I write inventory, I always ask God first to please show me what's blocking me from it because that never fails me. Um, I need more freedom. I need more God because I've suffered from tiny God syndrome all the way through this program. Um, when self appeared after the food went down, it came up like a huge iceberg. <laughs> um, and someone helped me a long time ago to just look at the basic instincts of life. And they said that they actually create the self. And that is the self that you're offering to your higher power. And I was like, oh, oh, I see. Yes, yeah, so that little formula helped me because it's not a pretty sight when I'm trying to run the show. And when that happens, I, there's no off switch. Um, it's very physical for me. I feel as if I have to run the show and control everything. It's as if my natural instinct is to do that. Um, the big book says in the not the big book and um, the OA twelve and uh, the AA twelve and twelve says about the instincts um, that where let's have a look. Sex, security, and social instinct. Creation gave us these instincts for a purpose, but in us they exceed their proper function and they can blindly, powerfully, and subtly drive us therefore dominate our lives. Nearly every serious emotional problem can be seen as a case of misdirected instincts and my instincts were always constantly hurt and threatened and I, I just really had to have a look at that. Um, I sound as if I decided to do that. It kind of, it, it kind of happened to me on the process. Um, so I don't need to psychoanalyze myself, but if you want to turn to page 65 and look at Mr. Brown's inventory, I'm going to see if I can show you what I mean. So this is the way we lay out the inventory on the paper, on paper in column three. So we've got here column one and column two and column three. The way I've come to see this inventory, and everybody sees things differently, is from the inside out. So out there in the world is who I resent, what makes me mad, what repeats in my head, that's column one, and in column two, the cause, the issue I've got with a person or an institute or a principle. And column three is my animal instincts, the things that have been threatened, that's me barking at the world outside. 
um, either in my mind or in reality, um, and it's not giving me any rest. And I noticed that my ego seems to have developed some really interesting key roles for itself. So daily I put on my show, and I love that visual of the theatre because that really works for me because I grew up with actors and I've spent an awful lot of time in the audience watching shows uh, and performances. So in doing this work, I noticed that I actually have stage characters and they each write inventory. Um, and each of these characters seem to have a, a desire to live, to survive. Um, so it's really good fun for me sometimes um, to just look at that when I'm writing inventory because... I'll write something down and I'll think, who's writing this inventory today? Wow, you're cross. What is going on here? Um, because I seem to define myself by roles I play. Um, I'm mum to my son and I'm a daughter to my mum and a friend to my friends and sponsor to my uh, people that I'm working with. And, and all the obvious ones I understand and I can see that. But I've got some other stage characters. When I'm writing inventory sometimes I have one called The Girlfriend. And she demands a boyfriend and she will get so cross until she gets what she wants because she can't live without a relationship. She can't live on God's will. She doesn't like God's timing and she's very demanding. Um, she tries to break out in a rush of self-will all the time. Um, she doesn't like God's, God's timing at all. She doesn't trust in God's timing. Likes to prove God wrong all the time. Another frequent stage character that crops up is a career woman. She defines herself by the praise she receives from a boss, um, the company car, the money in the bank, and she likes her self-esteem smoothing. So I can see where the self-esteem column can come in here. I write inventory. Um, no, actually, I was writing inventory about something last year, and she showed up for me. <laughs> I was trying to put the pressure on school about an issue with my son. And when I signed the letter, I did something so odd I, I signed it with na um, the letters after my name which I never use but I wanted to make sure that they got my point I wanted to know I wanted to make sure this stage character wanted to make sure that they knew who I was and who they were dealing with I was like oh gosh god please have that take that away that's horrible um so when I see these stage characters showing themselves um I can also see that they're trying to fight to survive they don't want to be part of God's show. They don't want to merge into the chorus line and into the background. They want to be the star of the show. Um, where's the humility? It goes completely out of the window. Um, so basically, for me, most of the time, it's my basic instincts that are in charge. Um, I've got a new one. She showed up recently. Um, my latest addition to my stage characters is Spiritual Woman. She likes to write inventory when things are not going according to the way the spiritual plan should be. If I'm reacting, getting really cross and not floating around life in a floaty white dress, showering everybody with love, then she gets really cross and things have to be, you know, dealt with. And I mean, it, I'm having a laugh with this sometimes with myself, but, you know, what it does is it takes me to some deep, deep, deep stuff that was hidden that my ego would not have me see about myself. Um, so looking again at the inventory on Mr. for Mr. Brown, I tried to write out what he might have written in column three if I wrote it out in full. So in column three, I would say, my basic instincts of self, these make up self, sex, social security, and I'm seeing that these are part of my basic makeup. 
And then I asked myself, what stage character is writing this inventory on Mr. Brown? Well, from my perspective, it looked like it was perhaps a perfect husband. He has this image of himself as being perfect husband. Um, and telling my wife about my mistress has really threatened me. I mean, we've got red alert, we've got lights flashing, we've got dogs barking, it's going crazy inside. So in column three, Mr. Brown's wrongdoings have the power to kill me. Um, the um, social uh, part of these things, self-esteem. I'm now invested in my role as husband because I'm a great provider. But my fear is, you notice that little brackets there with fear there's always a fear going on at the same time if she finds out about my mistress it's going to be over and now I'm going to have to show my bank statements and my bank account and she'll see I've boozed all all the money away so no wonder I'm fearful my pride's affected because all the people that we tend to hang out with think we're a great couple so my fear is that they can see right through me perhaps my ambition's affected because I want to show, uh, sorry, um, I was thinking about my parents and I wanted to grow old together like my parents did and now I'm going to have to let that dream go. So I'm quite afraid about that. I don't know what the future holds. My security is affected because we make a great team and I actually need her support and my fear is that I probably won't make it alone. My personal relationships have been affected because I'll be as long as I, I wanted to be married as long as my parents were, so I failed in marriage basically. My sex instincts, they're more about who I believe I am as a man or a woman. And he believed, I think, that he was a faithful partner, but um, now he might be saying, oh, I'm no good, I'm a failure, who knows what's happening um, in his head. But pocketbooks, um, perhaps they shared everything together in the house, and now he's afraid that he's going to lose all his money and go broke. And this is all registering as a threat. So when Mr. Brown tells on tells the wife of the mistress, this poor man's gone into red alert that's writing this inventory. His insides are going crazy at this point. In 10 seconds, he's gone from married to divorced, broke, in the gutter, character assassinated, and if he drinks, he's going to die. No wonder we end up back in the food. It certainly taught me an awful lot to just have a, a look and expand that column because... In the past, when I would take the inventory, I would just say self-esteem check, um, personal relationships check. Um, and I really just kind of had to just have a look at that and see what else was going on. And then when we turn on to the next page in the big book, we turn to the turnaround prayer. And um, whenever I'm, uh, yeah, whenever I'm taking someone through the book, I don't get them to sort of cherry pick. I will actually get them to read out the entire section. So on 64, they'll say we turn back to the list, etc., and they will put the person's name in, and, and that's what I do. Um, so I realise Mr. Brown is perhaps spiritually sick, and though I don't like his symptoms, and the way he disturbs me, he, like myself, is sick too. And I ask God to help me show Mr. Brown patience. I cheerfully grant a sick friend. And this is the key for me. I don't retaliate or argue in my head. If I'm still arguing in my head and going, yes, but, mm mm, -mm because my inventory can overspill into column four and I won't see things that are, the mistakes that I've made so I have to just say the prayer again if, if I'm still clinging so all I need here is a, a tolerant view now of Mr Brown I put out of my mind the wrongs that he's done and I look for my own res uh, resolutely look for my own mistakes what am I defending deep inside 
deep inside my the castle walls. I look at my um, core defects as like the kings of the castle. Um, my selfish core is well defended. It's years and years of twisted thinking hidden behind this castle wall. I'm in my denial. I'm in my delusion. I'm in my self-centered fear. And it's protected by this warning system of basic instincts. So if my dog was to hear somebody barking, it'd probably do that for 10 seconds and then go back to sleeping. But inside my head, it goes on and on and on and on. My security, my relationships, my sex relations, my emotion. Oh, my goodness. No wonder I collapse. Um, so I have to clean out the car. So I clean out the car with my higher power through the, the inventory process. And then the instincts themselves will also be taken care of because there's a ripple effect going outwards. So where am I selfish, self-seeking, dishonest and fearful in relation to Mr. Brown? Perhaps I have to defend some plans of designs that I have, my lovely little utopia that I had going on at the office or in my life. Um, my self-seeking actions in this stage play have been threatened. Um, Mr. Brown... What could I have been doing? Perhaps I was criticising him at the office. Maybe I've been stomping around or sulking and sighing deeply, making mountains out of molehills. And the poor clerk that works with us, she's had to put up with all this. She's had to put up with the brunt of my frustration, so I might have to make an amends to her. But my selfish attitude whilst I'm huffing and puffing and all that posturing is, um, I'm trying to get the office on my side. I want everybody to be on my side to back up my delusion because I believe I'm right and I think he's wrong. And perhaps another delusion is that I'm infallible um, and no one else would dare look at my wife. And there I was shooting my mouth off at the water cooler saying about my mistress. And actually, instead of commanding respect, I might have set the ball rolling myself and it might have been the fact that I was shooting my mouth off about it in the first place that sent Mr. Brown you know, off to tell my wife. So I probably started the whole thing with me. It usually starts with me and ends with me. Um, my core fear of being alone, I think probably could be driving all this. Um, so I'm really, really blocked off from a higher power. Um, but generally, it's just for a bit of fun and it just helps me just deepen things. And I don't always go through the stage characters or anything with anybody else. Um, but I do help people unpack their inventory if they needed to. One of the other things that happens with inventory processes, we can write down 100 resentments. And 100, these, 100 resentments being unpacked like this would take months. Um, so all I need to know is what my core issues are, my grosser handicaps and... I noticed that I could have nine people on that inventory that are offending me in the exact same way so I condense them down to one resentment. So instead of having nine people on an inventory, I've actually got, I'm resentful at people who have, say, a superior attitude and that just condenses it down. Because I was told, and I loved this, many years ago that the 95% of resentments I set on paper are hiding there's 5% that are really trying to kill me. And I found in my experience that that was true. Um, I can't second guess this. This is how willful I am. I try to find out what that 5% is, and I can't. Um, in my amazing turnaround, when I met God, there was one resentment that wasn't even put on my um, inventory at the time. Um, I think it was an afterthought a few days later, and I really realized that, yes, 
once that 95% had been set down on paper, read out at step five, the 5% that was really killing me just gushed up. Um, so I always seek guidance from somebody else. Um, and I would say that to anybody else, get guidance from somebody who's recovered when writing inventory, especially for the first time. Um, we're just looking to see where we're being blocked off from our higher power because we're so restless, irritable and discontented. And everybody's so different. Some of my guides have said they'll only take my worst cases. Uh, some of them will only take my family of origin. Some people will only take 50 of each of the three inventories um, and no more than 100. And usually I can condense them down. Um, but it's, you see, I used to think, well, I, I didn't condense them down because what if I miss something? But it never gets missed. It can always be caught in step 10. So dying to self, I let the sage characters die. I allow my higher power to align my will, which is the whole point for me, is to get aligned with the will, it, uh, together with that higher power's will for me. And I guess, for want of a better word, it will right-size my reactions. Instead of tsunamis and, and, and craziness, what, what generally happens is, and I'm sure you'll all agree, all of those of you who've experienced this, you could be in a traffic jam, and everybody's going crazy and tooting their horns and you're smiling and you're enjoying the midday sun and you're thinking about what, how you can be helpful to someone. It's a completely different way to live, isn't it? Um, so when my God removes my defects, my instincts get aligned as well um, because when my character defects change, my core changes and the ripple effect goes out towards my instincts. I just want to squeeze in a little quick word about emotions and feelings um, because they do have some worth in this process for me. In the past, my extreme motion, emotions were so dangerous because they would send me back to the food. But now I've got a good, strong connection with my higher power. I experience them very different. Um, I know today that anger, for example, is a feeling, goes hand in hand with my inventory process because it's kind of the energy part. The resentment is something I'm refeeling and replaying and I chew on. The energy, uh, the emotion, sorry, is energy in motion. It's like fuel. It's like a fuel that my body uses to push all the hidden blocks to the surface so I can set it to paper. And that's why I think when it comes up, I've got to capture it. Um, you see, I was taught to hide emotions and fear them and stuff them down, which was very lethal for my body and... I used to feel under pressure all the time. I felt like a steamer that couldn't vent. And if I did vent, of course, everybody would get blasted in the wave. Um, I was taught that emotions are either good or bad. Like we have joy and we have love on this side. And then we have unacceptable emotions like anger and envy and sadness on this side. And um, I've, I've found that actually I'm mostly neutral now. And what's been really, really helpful is to see them as the emotions as fuel they dig up the facts because that's what I'm looking for, the facts. I know when I talk to people about the way I'm feeling, there's about two hours of talking and then five minutes of facts at the end. <laughs> it takes me that long to get it out from the from the core. <laughs> um, so they will stay hidden and fester if I didn't have that energy in motion. Um, so today I don't really take my emotional temperature. Um, I let it sort of surface. God's my emotional compass today. Um, so another thing um, that I'll just squeeze in here is that when I've worked with other people um, in step four, they will, as I said, 
carry on ranting from column two into column four. Um, sometimes what happens is I will ask them to just take a piece of paper, rant on a piece of paper and just get back to the facts and see what facts came out. Um, you can get a bit blinded by emotions. Um, if I get really emotional, say for example, I know it's got history attached to it. So if I'm doing a step 10 on say a cab driver for overcharging me and I'm raging like a crazy person, I know that that cab driver has stepped on something that belongs to 1977 and it needs to be inventoried. And so I say, thank you, thank you, Mr. Taxi Driver, for really irritating me today. I would never have seen that if you hadn't have given me that gift. So <clears throat> people will sometimes do another thing, which is to, and I tried this, and that's what I was going to say before I forget. I'll leave my email address because I found five resources of people who do this work, the way in which I've just described it. Of course, you think yourself, don't you, that you, you're the only one who discovered it? <laughs> And then you realize you're just reinventing the wheel and someone got there before you. But there are five fantastic resources I can email to anybody who's interested. Because um, we all have different ideas and beliefs about self-esteem and pride and personal relationships. And what I began with was just before I did the checklist, which I sometimes do, I had a key. I'd make a summary. This is what I feel about self-esteem. This is what I mean when I say sex relations. This is what I mean when I say pocketbooks. And then I knew exactly what it was that I was talking about with myself when I was writing the fourth step. Um, I once watched a movie um, about a woman who um, really explained to me how God might see me from the outside when I'm ranting and raving. Um, how's it go? That was it. There was a woman and she was screaming really vicious words at her best friend. And I could see that her basic instincts of self were screaming and raging and firing off and they were clashing with the friends. It was so intense. And suddenly the friend stepped towards her and I thought, oh my goodness, she's going to slap her in the face and bring her out of the madness. Maybe that's what I need. But actually she didn't. She just embraced her. And she held her in her arms while she cried. And she knew she was in pain and she fought her with love. And I thought, wow, maybe that's what my higher power's got for me. That's what my higher power's trying to tell me. So now, I'm going to wrap up, I think. When, now, when I offer my will and my life to my higher power, it means so much more. I think what I'm asking for is, I'm saying, God, rewrite my DNA. Rewrite my disc, take all my stage characters, take all my hard drive, reboot it, reset it, set it back to the natural order of things, untwist me, erase the corrupted files. I'm, I'm a mess without your miracles, God. I'm a woman living on self-will run right. I can't even trust my own instincts without you. And just get into my coils of DNA. I know you can because you've took the compulsion and I know that you can take all of me and recreate me. You can take good and bad because I don't know what's good and bad. Because if I get in with my will, I might make a mistake and take the basic instincts I need to deal with fire and flood and speeding cars. And But I want my higher power to take spiritual woman who thinks she's made it. And I want him to take the tornado tearing people's lives up. And I want to take all the roles that I think I need to play and I want to be directed by you higher power and I want you to help me to pause.
and to turn and to ask for your help and ask for your guidance. I want to be connected with the spirit. I want spirit contra spiritum. And I've just written down this and then I'll shush. I read this somewhere, I've rewritten it, and it sums up for me the spirit of selflessness. A woman, <clears throat> a woman fell in a hole. The walls crumbled when she tried to climb out. And even when a passerby held down a rope, she didn't have the strength to climb out. One day, a man jumped down into the hole with her. What on earth did you do that for, she said, horrified. Now we're both trapped. And the man replied, it's okay. I've been down here before and I know a way out. Pass. Thank you so much, Carol, for sharing your inspiring and insightful story of your spiritual awakening. We thank you very much. Carol's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned. And now we'll transition to questions. If you have a question for Carol, you can present your question by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Good morning. It's Shoshana Kay with a question. Hi, Shoshana. One moment. Let's see if anyone else wants to be in this grouping. This is Laura G. I'd like to ask a question. Laura G. Mary Lee R. in Oregon has a question. Mary Lee R. Anyone Michelle else? L. Michelle L. Okay. Let's start with Shoshana Kay. Thank you. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much, Leah and Carol. Carol, this was such a beautiful, as always, presentation and filled with love and honesty and information, and thank you so much. And I loved what you were talking about at the end about pausing and about also throughout the whole presentation, living in the present. And I wasn't able to do that until I worked these steps. And especially doing now, I'm living in steps 10, 11, and learning about 12 and starting 12. I um, was wondering at the beginning for newcomers, like what to recommend when the food is down and they're feeling all those emotions and it's so hard to deal with that present, like what, what you would suggest for them. Thank you so much, Shoshana. It's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Um, I mean, what I did was, it, to me, because it is like energy, um, I have to find somewhere else to put it. So the first thing I will be doing is I'll be looking at the timing. Am I going through the steps fast enough? And my sponsor gave me a great gift. She allowed me to be the pace setter. Um, so as we were going through the work, um, we were going at a specific pace because we had to make the connection between each other, bridge the gap between the time differences. But equally, I was the pace setter. If I felt I needed to speed up, we'd speed up because there was only so long I could hang in that place. Um, so what I would do, what I did was, and can still do now if I'm doing inventories, I'll use that energy and transform it into something physical. I'll get out there and I'll do something physical for somebody else. I'll help somebody else in a way that only my higher power has enabled me to help them. Because whilst I'm doing that and working with others constantly and communicating with others, um, I am still connected. 
and it does seem to um, enable me to not be as distressed as I, as I, I think I might be. But for me, I kept repeating something in my head. The relief is in the work. The relief is in the work. And you know what? Every time I sat down and I was really restless and irritable and started writing, it just dissipated. It was amazing. It really helped. That's my answer. Thank you, Shoshana Kay. Laura G., your turn. Uh, good morning, fellows. Um, Carol, I have so many questions that um, I'm going to – you said you were going to give your email at the end, or I mean at that last bit of a expression you had before you – anyway, please please say it so I can say it slow so I can just email you and not monopolize the call because I have tons of questions, please. You're welcome. Actually, if you don't mind, Leira, I'll say it now because there might be somebody who might listen to this in, in the future that might need to, to take that um, inventory. So um, uh, it's going to be Big Book Buddy. Sorry, it's a tongue twister. Big Book Buddy, as in Buddy Holly, B U D D Y. Big Book Buddy. Oh, gosh, I forgot my own email address. Wait a minute. How can that happen? I'm just making sure it doesn't say angel because sometimes it does. It it does, hurrah! So it's big book buddy angel at aol americaonline dot co dot uk, and I'll give it at the end as well. <laughs> Sorry. Big book buddy at aol dot. I know it's co period. UK. C O period UK. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody else. I have a blessed to be on the call. You're welcome. And Mary Lee R. with a question. Good morning. I wish she had have asked all those questions. Um, I missed the first five minutes, so you might have already done this, but what did you say specifically today before you started to talk? What what prayer, what what did you give out, give up, to give out? Merrily, I'm not sure I understand that you mean my presentations about the spiritual malady. You you mentioned you you have certain things that you say before you do things and um I just wondered if you had something that you said this morning because the inspira you could I could just feel the um the spiritual inspiration and I just wondered if you had certain words or prayer or a place in a big book that you hmm. go to for different situations and what was the one or did you have one for this morning? I understand completely now. Thanks, Mary Lee, for re-saying that. Um, you know what? It was funny. This this morning, um, I said, higher power, how am I going to make sure that I'm not being willful here? How do I know that I'm saying what you want me to say? And I was inspired to say to call in my ancestors 
and I went through names of people who've gone before me and people I've listened to and inspirational sharers and people that I've known, pioneers of the of the group, of the meetings, of, of all the big book. And I asked them, I just said to them, can you come in and speak through me? So that's basically what I did. And the other one that I would usually do is... Um, is to just say thou will, uh, not my own, because I can get really into bondage to self, but I can always tell when my higher power is speaking with me. Um, so, yeah, thank you for allowing me to just sit back and think about that. But also, I think it was just calling in from all my lineage. That's perhaps what you might have missed, Marilyn. Thank you. Thank you, Absolutely. Mary Lee. Michelle L. Good morning. Thank you, Leah, um, for your service. And Carol, thank you so much for this really inspiring, God-centered um, presentation that you gave this morning. I was taking notes. I got um, lots of lots of wisdom and guidance here. Um, I love your stage characters, and I could certainly relate. Um, and you mentioned it's a ripple effect going outwards. And I was wondering if you could expand on this a little bit um, in terms of maybe a recent inventory that you've had, you've taken a tenth step, and then you know any specific actions that you've had to take as a result of this inventory, um, maybe a, either a living amends or some specific actions as a result. Thanks. Thank you, Michelle. Um, isn't it funny how you can never remember um, anything specific? Let's have a think. Let's see if I can process that. So I, I know what you mean about the ripple effect. Um, it happens in so many different ways for me. Um, first of all, there's the ripple effect that comes from inside of me. So my core defects. When I am convinced on the inside that I'm right and that somebody else is wrong and that it has to go the way in which I think it has to go. The way in which I feel changes and the way in which I act changes. Not only have I just got a selfish attitude and a self-seeking attitude, but um, I've also, I physically change. My words get shorter. My, the way I speak changes and everyone around just runs for cover. They can tell that something's going to happen and they're going to get controlled all over. Um, so that's the ripple effect that comes from inside of me. And when that's turned around, I think, by using the inventory process, um, for example, if I'm writing inventory and as I'm writing, I'm looking at something, I'm saying, oh my goodness, I really need, say for example, in the security area, I really need to know that this is going to work out, otherwise I don't feel secure, God. I go, oh, really? Do I really need it to be that important? Is it really that? Oh, my goodness, really? Oh, please, God, take that. And in that moment, when, when that changes, and I go through the rest of the inventory, and I get to the, to the delusion that I'm probably in about something that I heard or learned when I was a small child, perhaps, that really needs digging out and being released, that changes me. And suddenly, the people who are in the room, it's almost as if you could see the energy waves, um, they all suddenly start to calm down. 
and I send out waves of happiness and, and peace and joy. So those blocks are so tangible for everybody else because my behavior changes around everybody else. It's very difficult for me to describe anything personally or um, off the top of my head without processing it, but I'm sure I can connect with you and, and take you through some. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Who else has a question for Carol this morning? Star one on mute. Hello. Hi. Yes. Your name, Hi. please. Hi, this is Leah. Okay, Leah. Um, one, Leah moment. How are you? one moment, Leah. Go ahead, I know. Anyone else have a question? Eve. Eve. All right. And who else? Anyone else with a question for Carol G? This will be the final invitation for questions this morning. I'll take the silence as a no. Okay, go ahead, Leah. Uh, my name is Leah D. I'm a, um, a compulsive overeater. Um, first of all, thank you so much for your share, your strength, your hope and experience, your honesty. Um, I hope you got my hug. And um, I'm sorry you had all that pain, and I feel your pain, and I'm with you on that. Um, I heard you speak, and my compulsive nature says, Oh, I just did my fourth step. I didn't do it as good as that. Was I thorough enough? Was I good enough? Wait a minute, what did I miss? And I'd like you to just share and say that it's a process for each one of us, and it's not right or wrong. It just is. And everyone's recovery, I believe, comes from within their own guide, and we can always do better and different. And I just want to, I just feel like, you got it in a way that, wow, how did you do that? Just how did you do that? It seems like a big mystery to me, and, and it brought a lot of inspiration. I already sent you an email. And I guess the question is, how did you get to that process so fast, and was, was it a process? Thank you so much, Leah, uh, and thank you for your hug. Gratefully received. Um, it is a process, and, you know, you took the words out of my mouth um, everybody is going to have their own um, evolution and <laughs> I always remember um, since the moment I came to OA everyone was seemed to be so f far ahead than I was everyone seemed to understand it more than I I was so uh, irritated by that because I really wanted to get this elusive there where is there well I just have to cross the T off and I've got here I just need to be here, right now, where I am, because my personal higher power has got me on a journey, and I don't know what's going on. I can't see the big picture, and my mind forever would like to see that big picture instead of just taking one baby step at a time. And so you're right, be here, be now, be where you are, because where you are is where you're meant to be, and it's something that I've learned just coming, I suppose it's an evolution process, because... The first step four I ever took, I set on fire. My first sponsor told me to burn it symbolically in the garden. And then when we got to step eight, she said, so who have you harmed? I said, I don't know. I've burnt it in the garden. So that's where I started. That was my humble beginnings. 
Um, and then I've tried all kinds of different um, methods after that. I've done the, the fourth step process and the fourth to ninth uh, process differently many, many times round. Um, it was always the same inventory, but it was a different me. In each time frame, it's a different me. And if you were to talk to me next week, I might have had a completely different insight, and so may you. And I think while I was always thinking of this elusive there and that I needed to get there, but actually I believe from my point of view that we're all climbing up the same mountain. We're all going up this huge mountain with the same guidebook, but we're each going to take a completely different path. Some of us are going to go left, some of us are going to go straight up, some of us are going to go climbing that way. We might pass each other on the journey, we might share information, we might pass, but what comes from within, that's what we're digging for. We're digging for that gold within, we're looking for that diamond, we're looking for the, the connection with our higher power. And when we listen, when I listen to that quiet, still voice, it tells me. Um, and if my ego is quiet long enough for me to uh, listen and then take that action, I think that's the most remarkable thing. So when it comes to the step four process, what I do is I say, God, you tell me what needs to go on the sheets and you tell me if I've interpreted the big book correct and you tell me if I'm doing this right. And with that personal connection, even though I was in the food, I was not in the food, even though I was in the food process, uh, the step four process, and I was um, newly abstinent, there was a little bit of connection there. I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but when I looked back, I was like, ah, yes, you were there all along. I just couldn't see you for all the blocks. It's a long-winded answer, but thank you for the question. Thank you, Leah D. And our final question this morning comes from Eve. Hello, can I be heard? Yes. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Carol, very much for your share. You mentioned that the 5% doing the inventories, that 95% or the majority of them are not what's really the issue, but it's the 5% hidden ones. Can you talk about that a little bit more, as well as how you made the decision to work with someone for just 13 weeks and how that really happens. Um, I've been working for a couple of years now on my uh, big book step study process with a very strong, experienced person, but I keep breaking my abstinence. And it, it, I'm afraid to also um, work with someone that I don't know if they're going to be as strong doing a, a shorter process. So I'm in the fear and asking for guidance, but also asking you how you distinguish between that 5% that will bubble up and working just for 13 weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. Um, hmm. 13 weeks, yes, that's now my lucky number. Um, it was an interesting thing that happened. She 12 set me. Um, she, what happened was, it's amazing, isn't it, how you can forget. It's all such a wind, a whirlwind. Um, so, for example, I've been working the 12 steps. I've been working them cyclically over and over and over and kept relapsing all the time. 
Um, and I was doing something that I didn't realize I was doing until I look back now. And that was I was choosing the sponsor. I was deciding, I was getting the right make, the right model, just like you would do with a car. I was saying, I need somebody who's this and I need somebody who's that. Um, and when I get that, and when we connect and when, when we have that thing between us, then that's, 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 that's when it's going to work. Um, and actually what happened was um, someone heard maybe a tremble in my voice or something on the lines when I was speaking on Vision For You. And she called me and said, you sound in pain or can I help? And I went, yes. <laughs> and she was it. And she was the person. And I don't, I, we were in different countries. We, our, you know, we're never going to meet each other. It just says, just like it says, we're, we're people who would not normally mix. She came out of the darkness and shone some light and she said let's go you're the pace setter and because um it is really hard it was really really hard for me to hang on with that food stop that keep that food down at first i did have to exert some self-will but as i shared with someone else i i i used that energy for other things with working with other people um <clears throat> excuse me so again it's um it's about trust, isn't it? And I wasn't a trust. Uh, I wasn't a very trusting person. I wasn't trusting that that God knew what it was doing. Um, I wasn't really trusting that God really had my best interest at heart. And have you not read my script, God? And I'm not being arrogant or horrible, but that's the way in which I was talking to my higher power. It wasn't nice. I was telling God exactly what God needed to do and how it needed to do it. Um, and the minute I took my my hand off that and stopped doing that and laid down on the floor on the floor and said you know what god i believe help me with my unbelief i don't trust help me to trust you know i just told god i just told myself i told my spirit you know what it is that i need um something will show up and i think in terms of the five percent and the 95 percent Again, my lo my lovely mind, bless it, would love, love to sort of turn everything into a, a drama. Um, and so it also likes to turn everything into categories and puts things in boxes. Um, so it's just a, it's kind of an overall statement to just show you that I think sometimes what, what ends up happening is we collect all this uh, debris from the past, these wrongs, these mistakes, these where we are to blame. Um, and they just cloud our vision. Um, and we just set them on paper and my higher power seemed to rummage through them all and go, yes, check, yes, check, yes, check. Aha, this is the bit that's blocking you off from me, Carol. This is the bit I'm going to remove and everything else gets rearranged. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily worry about um, some of the terminology that we use sometimes. I just go with your heart. Um, I nearly said follow the yellow brick road there. <laughs> Thank you and I pass. Thank you, Eve, for your question, and thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Carol, for shining your beautiful light of recovery upon all of us this morning. We thank you for your service. I will close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. 
but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.